Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I'm here with two of my friends from the Mathematica Policy Research Institute, Adam Coyne and Jennifer DeValance. Adam, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on. I'm interested in chatting with you about the challenges and struggles and successes you've had communicating economic and social policy research to uh, sort of your traditional audience and maybe even to a wider audience. But because many of my listeners may not be familiar with Mathematica, I was hoping that you might each introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about what Mathematica does. So Jennifer, why don't you, uh, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Uh, my name is Jennifer DeValance, and I am the Director of Public Affairs at Mathematica. And Mathematica has actually been around for quite some time, uh, more than 40 years doing policy and program evaluation, data collection and research, uh, largely on human health and human services issues. So we look a lot at um, all things healthcare, improving care, uh, education issues, employment issues. Um, and we're really focused on bringing our clients and policymakers high-quality, objective information that can improve public well-being. Great. And Adam, what uh, what's your role at the sure. at uh, I am uh, Mathematica's chief of staff uh, and senior vice president for uh, communications. Uh, and, and I work with uh, Jennifer and, and a team of, of actually more than 50 um, communications professionals um, to really ensure, uh, you know, that the, the right people get the, the right information at the right time. Uh, you know, as, as Jennifer said, uh, you know, we are, are really committed to uh, objective evidence-based standards uh, and, and superior data, um, but we're also uh, committed to collaboration. And, uh, you know, being good partners means uh, making sure that we're working with all the right folks to help improve public well-being. So before we dive into the sort of challenges and struggles you've you've had communicating your work or, or successes, probably a better term, what what is the team that you've you've tried to build there to create the different um, communication projects? So so obviously you have a, a large research staff that's doing the sort of uh, economic social research, the sort of things that I do over here. But but what are the sort of communication uh, team skills that you've pulled together? Um, sure. Maybe maybe I'll start with this, Jennifer, and you can you can chime in if you have some some other thoughts. Uh, you know, we we really have a multidisciplinary uh, you know team of program staff here, and I think the same is true with our approach to to building a communications department and a communications team. So uh, you know, our our team of of fifty plus people uh, involves uh, experts in uh, you know strategic dissemination. Uh, that's, you know, planning, implementation, media relations, social media, all of that external uh, communications that folks think about. Uh, but we also have experts in government relations. We have experts in, in graphic design and, and data visualization. Uh, we have a large editing team. We have a large production uh, team. Uh, so, in essence, we have a group that sort of deals with communications from soup to nuts. Everything from conceiving, you know, our strategic goals and how to implement them, and the wide variety of folks it takes uh, to do that effectively uh, for ourselves, our partners, and our clients. And what's the, just sort of get a, a sense of scope, what's the ratio between the, the research staff and the communication staff? How many? Yeah. Uh, we're, we're about 5% of the company. <laughs> a little less. We are a small but mighty team. 
<laughs> the small and mighty powerful communications team. So what's the what sort of have you had to make some workflow adjustments to to you know have five percent of of the organization manage and output all the research that that's coming out? Are there, are there been workflow adjustments in terms of what? Um, responsibilities and skills the research staff has had to, um, have they had to add skills or um, have they had to uh, wait to get things out the door? What, what, what are those sorts of adjustments like? Well, the key for us has been planning. Um, mm -hmm. I like to say plan your work and work your plan. So when we uh, first conceive of a data visualization uh, concept, we try to do it far enough in advance so that folks who have plates that are already quite full uh, can plan for it, and then we play to the team members' strengths. Um, so we really try to focus uh, the researchers on, you know, are we getting the numbers right? Are we um, making sure that there are no misperceptions uh, that we're inadvertently conveying? We're uh, maximizing the programmer's time so that everybody has a strong sense of uh, when things are coming down the pike and when we'll really need their their help and assistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if I had to add to what Jennifer said, you know, I, I think there are two big changes that have happened, uh, you know, over maybe particularly the last five years, uh, you know, because much of communication hasn't changed. You know, folks folks understand what goes into producing a report, for example. Right, right. Um, but, you know, what's different is a combination of, of things that are new. So, uh, you know, what goes into a, a report now, people expect a lot more graphics, a lot more visuals, those kinds of things. And it's making sure to build in time into your workflow for that. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is really just the explosion of what I'll call real-time communications. Um, you know, this was uh, historically a challenge with researchers. You know, you get a call from the New York Times, uh, and they'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm busy. Uh, can we talk to them tomorrow? And, you know, the answer was, uh, no, the paper will be out tomorrow. Right, right. Um, and, and now it's become even more immediate. Uh, oh, I saw this, you know, blog, and I want to comment on it. I'm going to get to that in a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the answer is, if you want to comment on it, you need to get to that in a couple of minutes. <laughs> and are you finding that the researchers are are responsive to that? As as a large group, no. Uh, mm -hmm. We're we're finding pioneers who get it. Yeah. And are paving the way for others. I think. Right. Yeah, there's always seems to be a, a oh, I have the same experience in, 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 at the Urban Institute and other organizations that there seems to be a core group of, of, of people who are really interested in, in changing the way or, or tapping into these new uh, forms of communication. Um, so can you talk a little bit about maybe the other struggles you've had with um, either if it's projects coming in or products going out, what researchers are, are, what are they yelling at you about, the things that they want to do versus the capacity constraints of moving all that, uh, all that research out the door through, you know, a group of 50 or so people? Well, I think the biggest opportunity for communications collaborating with the researchers is to help them um, put their findings in a context, in a narrative, that non-technical audiences interested and educated but but not super technical folks um, find relevant and mm -hmm. are interested in and are willing to dive a little deeper and, and to help them figure out why it matters and why they should care and identify ways that they can apply it to policy, program, and practice. Um, that, that can be tough because after working on a research project for several years, 
you know, they want to talk about everything. So, uh, of course, it's important to, to put it in a policy-relevant context, but also in a way that's brief, uh, mm-hmm. that isn't taxing, and that um, provides a suite of opportunities um, targeted to the audience so that there's really no wrong door to the information. And as you're working through that pro- – so I like this idea of working through the process. So if you're working through this process, are you – do you start right away? Do you, at the very beginning, a project comes in and a researcher, a group of researchers says, we're going to work on this particular topic. Do you start right away at the very beginning of that project and say, okay, this is, this is the process we're going to go through and these are the products that we want to publish at the end of the six months or the end of the year? In a perfect world, yes. <laughs> um, you know. That is utopia. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. In the real world, not as much. Although, uh-huh. you know, what's interesting, uh, John, is I'm seeing a real trend towards that. Okay. Uh, so what's happening now, uh, you know, both from a, a lot of our, our clients, uh, a lot of government agencies are embedding strategic communications and dissemination in the RFP. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's actually becoming a part of the planning from the beginning. Um, which is very, very useful, um, and I think makes, uh, you know, both sides, the research and the dissemination, uh, much more integrated and, frankly, much more effective. Right. And we're also seeing, I think, more clients and, and more RFPs come out that are asking for communication throughout the life cycle of the project. I think folks are starting to see that, you know, when you have a big project, you, you shouldn't just talk about it at the very end. You can engage with stakeholders throughout the project and really build interest and awareness of the work you're doing. Right. And so in those in that change in the way the the on the demand side, are you finding that the that the research staff is responding to that? So obviously if you want to get a grant and the grant maker says you need to do an infographic and an interactive visualization, if they want the grant they're going to go ahead and do that. But are you finding that the researchers are more amenable to those sorts of things? When those um, aspects of the of the of the ask are are part of the grant request, most definitely. Um, and I would actually uh, I would actually extend that to uh, you know I, I, Jennifer Jennifer and I have a, a funny maxim that to know us is to love us. Uh, <laughs> and I find actually uh, you know most researchers who start working with communications uh, just end up wanting to work more with communications. Mm-hmm. So, you know, certainly when it's a requirement, uh, you know, and they have to, uh, they do it. But I, I think what they find is, uh, you know, we can really help them get the word out, uh, and we can help them accomplish their goals. Well, and I also think it's really incumbent on any communications team to build trust with their research team, um, to work very hard and very collaboratively. Um, to make sure that we're not doing violence to the evidence. Um, nobody inadvertently makes the numbers say something they really don't. And once you build that trust, and as Adam says, demonstrate that you can make more people aware of these important findings, then uh, the researchers are much more willing and enthusiastic about partnering moving forward. Right. So as this let's call it a snowball effect, as things start to pick up and there's more grant makers are requesting more of a digital presence or a communication strategy, and more researchers turn to respond to that um, and, and want those things and, and, are, and, and, like, and end up liking to, you know, they end up loving you, Adam, and they want to work more with you. How do you sort of balance the, the greater demand from your research, from the researchers and the, the staff that you, that you have there 
um, in terms of you know managing all the different requests? You know, I think um, there are two aspects to that. One, certainly prioritization and focusing, you know, sort of a, a, on the most important uh, and the most urgent. Um, but the other thing is uh, what I call, you know, an evolving set of responsibilities. Uh, you know, our communications department has certainly grown in the last few years, um, but, you know, at least half of the folks that are here today were here five years ago, and I would be willing to say that of that 25-odd group, you know, those 25 people, 80% mm -hmm. of their job is different. Mm. Um, so, you know, in a sense, we're trying to be mindful of, as we take on new responsibilities and new activities, what are the things that no longer make sense? Um, what are the things that, that we can give up? Right. And uh, a great example of that, you know, is we actually do less media relations um, than we did in the past, uh, you know, because we, we've become much more of a direct content uh, producer and provider. Right, uh, right. You know, so the intermediary isn't, isn't playing the same role that it once was. That doesn't mean we still don't do media relations, but, the, you know, but the, the balance has shifted, uh -huh. for example. And do you see that? Do you see that trend? I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, Brookings, uh, Mathematica, Pew, Urban, we all have sort of our own, uh, you know, everybody has their own blog. They have their own uh, digital presence, be it interactive visualizations or, or, or static visualizations. Do you see that continuing? And what does that mean for ultimately for the relationship between, you know, this sort of think tank nonprofit sector and the media sector? Well, I think it certainly will continue, and in fact, I think it will increase and broaden, and we're seeing clients that are asking for more direct stakeholder outreach mm -hmm. um, in, in the form of uh, social media, um, in the form of, you know, webinar engagement directly with um, program providers and administrators, and they're not, you know, they're shying, moving away from going through these gatekeepers um, that folks traditionally had to go through, and that, again, that doesn't, uh, mean that uh, the re the relationship between folks like our organization and others and the media is diminished. Um, it just is more layered, and yeah. I think that that at the same time the relationship with policymakers becomes stronger uh, because there is an opportunity to present them with succinct policy relevant information that they can use um, right away to help improve programs. Right, interesting. And are you? Are, I was going to say the other thing I just add to that, John, is yeah, you know, I, I agree with everything Jennifer said, um, but the gatekeepers still rule. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, no matter you know how successfully our, our most successful direct outreach um, is a drop in the bucket compared to right. traffic to you know a Washington Post or a Vox or you know a New York Times. Sure, sure. So. So that leads me to my next question of how do you measure success? You have, I mean, obviously, you, you, you know, you have a research project, and if the funder's happy, that's one measure of success. But now we sort of talking about this greater, broader outreach. Uh, do, you, are you, do you have certain measures of success that you, that, you, that you use as your barometers? Well, certainly in communications, it's always tricky because you want to measure outcomes rather than just outputs. Mm -hmm. um, some of the traditional measures that the industry has used still are important and relevant media impressions, 
um, you know, any host of, of website uh, metrics, click-throughs, and, and whatnot. Um, but we also really pay attention to, hey, did, you know, did somebody get invited to testify as a result of this outreach? Um, how many people are attending our webinars? And, and what types of folks? Are they policymakers? We take a look at, um, you know, how many program administrators across the United States are participating. So um, while we still use the kind of meat and potatoes of uh, measurement in terms of communications, we also uh, extend that into other more outcomes-based measures as well. Right. And we have, a, we have a whole different set of tools at our disposal now, which is, uh, you know, far more useful. Um, you know, why, while, you know, dissemination has always been about two-way communication, um, now we can track it in a whole different way. Um, so we'll understand, uh, you know, who's opening an email or who's paying attention to different kinds of things. Um, you know, we can see engagement on our social media channels. We can, we can find where visitors to our website are coming from. Um, you know, so we can track those kind of metrics, um, and then we can also actually use them to adapt and adjust uh, our communication strategies to make sure we're achieving our goals. Right. So we have, uh, let's say, a new uh, new foundation out there, new research institute wants to start up. What would your – here we're back into in the utopia world. What would your first um, – what would your recommendation be as a group starts to try to build out an, a successful communication strategy? Well, first and foremost, always know your audience. Who do you want to target? What are their information consumption habits? Um, and how do you create multiple pathways so that um, you can design products that reach and engage them and drive them to the information you're hoping they will um, use and implement in, in their activities? Mm. Um, but it's also, you know, getting back to that multidisciplinary team, it's important to have folks from um, not only with various skill sets on your communi communications team, but also with a variety of perspectives um, so that someone can say, hey, look, our policymakers aren't going to have time to read much more than a, a two-pager, um, whereas, you know, maybe we, we might want to um, engage this program audience with some interactive dashboard approaches. Um, so folks who understand the, the perspectives and the information consumption habits of that target audience that you're shooting for is really important. The other thing that I would add, uh, you know, to what Jennifer said is, you know, be very clear on what your goals are and what you're trying to, to accomplish um, because you always want to circle back to that. Um, and the second thing that I would add to, you know, sort of the, the new utopian organization starting out um, is don't be afraid to start small and build. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Google didn't start out, you know, saying we want to become the dominant search engine on the web. Uh, <laughs> you know, eBay didn't start out to, you know, become this huge online marketplace. Uh, it's okay to, you know, start out small, uh, you know, prove the value that you add and grow over time. Right. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, well, it sounds like uh, a lot of the sort of folks in our in our uh, sector are, are struggling with some of these uh, similar issues. So uh, I appreciate you both coming on. It's been a really nice uh, conversation. So thanks, uh, Adam and Jennifer, both for coming on the show. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much, John. And thanks everyone for listening. Um, this has been the Policy of His podcast. I will see you next week. Mm -hmm.